Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. How is the word spirit used in the Bible? What does it mean to be possessed by an unclean spirit? Are spirits real? What does the unclean spirit in Mark chapter 9 tell us about the disciples of Jesus? Why is the afflicted child in Mark unable to hear or speak? Who is to blame for the boy's impairment? What does all this have to do with angels? weather forecasts, and narcissism. Trust the Lord, because on that day, if you are found under the influence of an unclean spirit, you will not be able to say, the devil made me do it. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 62 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This past Sunday, once again, Richard, you gave a great sermon on Mark chapter 9. It was nice because we've been dealing with Mark in the last couple of episodes and dealing with themes from the prophets, especially with respect to the question of scarcity. But it hinges, really, you were saying, on some basic background information on what the word spirit means when the text talks about an evil spirit. And by the way, I really appreciated the way you contextualized the concept of being possessed by an evil spirit. So would you give a little bit of background on the term spirit and then maybe talk about the reading in general? Understanding the word spirit, it's always very difficult to nail down these very abstract terms. But just first of all, so we understand how complex this was in the ancient mind, you know, we know that in Greek we didn't just have spirit, we also had soul. We have pnevma, but we also have psihi. So that gives us an idea how complex it was. And in Hebrew, we have ruach and we have nefesh. They have overlapping meanings. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time pulling apart those terms, but I want people to realize that just the fact that there are separate terms means that there is a distinction that they're making in the ancient world. But what I want to help spell out is how they function. I'm going to look specifically at spirit because this is what's mentioned in the gospel reading. So the spirit, which is the pnevma or the ruach, is what animates the human being. So it allows the human being to live and move around and take actions. So we see how Adam is created in dirt, but then is animated with the spirit, the ruach of God, or the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. They're bones, but then once the wind comes, the ruach, then it enters into the bones and enters and creates human beings. It's what allows us to move around and take actions. Now, ruach is neutral because we move around and we create actions. Once you no longer have a ruach, once you no longer have a spirit, you're dead. You're not moving around anymore. They can tell you're dead when you're no longer breathing. But when you're breathing, you're no longer moving. They go together. When we look at then the distinction between a good spirit or a bad spirit or the spirit of God or something like that, 
then it's starting to make a judgment about the type of actions we're taking. So the spirit then is completely functional. If you have the spirit of God, then you're taking actions that are godly, that are according to God's instruction, the actions that God commanded you to make. In another gospel, in John, the concept of nevma or ruh is pronounced and really stressed with respect to the function of the Holy Spirit, right? So just as the wind blows, God's you know breath, his wind moves upon the earth in the Older Testament. In John, the Holy Spirit goes to and fro upon the earth as it wills, which means that the Spirit controls actions and it does so in a way that can't be controlled by human beings. That's what's so nice about this concept of wind as it relates to spirit. On the one hand, you have the superstition in the ancient world that there was wind, and this is outside the context of the Bible, that wind may be the movement of some unseen force and then dreamed up the concept of the spiritual realm and all of these different mythologies. But scripture hones in, at least in John, on this prophetic idea that the spirit moves as it wills and you have no control over it. It's uncontrollable. That's exactly right. And when you see a person's actions, you can tell if they are animated by God or animated by some other force. A spirit of jealousy, which means they're acting in a jealous way. If they're animated by a spirit of evil, they're acting in an evil way. The spirit of a demon, they're acting in a demonic way. So the action and the spirit are inherently linked. It's animating you to take a particular kind of action. And in this sense, if you disallow the popular tendency towards dualism, you know, in Platonic philosophy, I mean, it's or Neoplatonism, where you imagine that there's an action in a physical body and some other separate reality. If you just disavow that mentality and try to think Semitically, try to think scripturally, when you see an evil action, it's real. So this discussion about whether demons are real or spirits are real is in a way a silly discussion because evil actions are real. Actions that comply with Torah are real actions. And so therefore the spirit that animates them is actually the reality. Well, and you think of the ancient world, you know, we always have to return to this agricultural mindset. When you look outside, rain doesn't just appear. What comes first? Wind blows in your luck. If you're going to have good weather or a bad weather, it depends on if it's a good wind or a bad wind. They had different names for the different winds and even different personalities of different winds. A good wind from this direction brought in good weather. A bad wind from a bad direction brought in bad weather. You know, wind and spirit really are about the way things act and the way things manifest themselves. A spirit is always manifested. You mentioned John in talking about how you can always tell where the wind or the spirit has been. It's Ezekiel. The chariot comes out of the temple and moves where it wants to and fro. I mean, that's what the spirit does. Exactly. Now, one thing to understand about the spirit of God, spirit is the breath. But God doesn't just breathe. He doesn't just whistle. He has a word that always comes with his spirit. And so when it comes specifically to the God of Scripture, Torah is always part of that breath, part of that spirit. So when the spirit of God enters into us, this is how Torah enters into us. And when we act 
with the spirit of God, we're acting with the spirit of Torah. So that means the law and the commandments are manifested in our actions. And this is what we're commanded to do. So we can tell if we have the spirit of God because we act according to God's will, which is according to Torah. It's actually very simple to see. Is this person acting according to Torah or not? Okay? In the spirit of is the correct way to think about it. You act in the spirit of, you think in the spirit of something. And there's another nuance here because in popular piety, people ascribe personality to different spirits. And when you're thinking about this in a dualistic way, that's extremely problematic. Not the least because it takes accountability away from the actor and puts it on some imaginary personality manipulating the actor. The reality is the spirit is something that you choose. It's a mentality. It's in the spirit of something. What brings personality to that spirit is the actor. So when you are imagining that there's personality behind evil, you need look no further than the reflection in the mirror. Exactly. Also, because the spirit is tied to the teaching that one receives, in looking in the mirror, you can see by your actions which teaching you're following. Now, there's one very mechanical way that one receives the teaching, which is the teacher teaches you, and that's how you receive the spirit. So how do you receive the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, is by receiving God's instruction. They go together, and it's very matter-of-factual in Deuteronomy 6, where after you get a repetition of the Ten Commandments, then the assembly is commanded that you are constantly to meditate on and speak Torah when you stand up, when you sit down, when you go in, when you go out, constantly, day and night, you're talking and you're acting according to Torah. Then once you have a child... The child one day will ask, why do we have to do these things? And your response is to be, according to Deuteronomy 6, that we were slaves in Egypt and God, with his outstretched arm, brought us out into this land so we could perform good works, good actions. This is the spirit. So actually, it's very simple. You perform Torah. You speak Torah. Your child asks you, why are you doing all these things? You say, because we were brought under the aegis of God in the Exodus. This is how it works. So there's a very unmystical aspect of spirit, which is that the teacher is required to teach the student. The father is required to teach the son, the child, so that they receive the spirit. And if the father does not do these things, then the child is damned because they don't receive the spirit from him. Maybe they can get the spirit from somewhere else. That's up to God. But the father, by not performing and not teaching Torah, withholds this teaching from the child, and therefore the child then is a higher potential of performing bad deeds because they haven't received the teaching, they haven't received the Spirit of God. In this way, what the father does is essential for the son to have the correct spirit. It's very clear from the reading that the child suffers for the parent's deficiency. Right. A lot of times we read this passage and we get very sentimental about this father and his crying. And he says, I believe, forgive my unbelief. And this is very sentimental because actually the problem is he's right. It's actually his fault that the child doesn't have the correct spirit, has a demonic spirit, which makes him act crazy and try to hurt himself. Because as you pointed out, unbelief means lack of trust. 
Exactly. Yeah. So his refusal to trust the father's instruction fell upon subsequent generations just as we're warned in Exodus that right. the sins of the fathers are visited on the children and so forth. Throughout this chapter and the previous chapter in Mark, this has been a problem so much. We spoke previously in a podcast about the problem of the disciples just not understanding the loaves. Don't accept the teaching of the Pharisees, right? If you accept the teaching of the Pharisees, according to what I'm saying, you're receiving an evil spirit. You're choosing an evil spirit over the spirit of God if you choose the leaven of the Pharisees. But of course, they didn't understand the leaven of the Pharisees as teaching. They understood it as bread. They were very confused. Afterwards, then we have the episode of the Transfiguration, which comes in the same chapter, Mark chapter 9, we're discussing today, where Peter sees Jesus, and he's as white as anyone can imagine, and next to him are Elijah and Moses. He says, okay, maybe we can build huts for them so they can stick around. And as soon as they say that, they disappear, and God said, would you please just listen to Jesus? He's my son. Just listen to him. Just listen to him. Scripture is really very easy to understand if you are able to understand narcissism, which should be easy for Americans. Of course. So maybe the gospel could be easy for Americans as narcissists. As Americans, when we speak, we're always talking about ourselves. Everything is always about us, how it pertains to me, my experience, my coming of age. That's why scholars invented this silly concept of the messianic secret, because they project their ego odyssey into Jesus Christ, which is non-functional in the gospel. But scripture is also in a way narcissistic but biblical narcissism is beautiful because scripture constantly refers to scripture which is a way of supplanting ego with instruction so when you hear leaven when you hear spirit when you hear bread you hear these different terms it's really simple to understand what's going on god's talking about the teaching over and over and over again so all of these symbols pertain to scripture. It's really not hard to understand. It's not a big stretch for us to realize that we're not talking about invisible ghosts. We're talking about the same thing we're always talking about. And I like that you mentioned how it's just repeated over and over again in this narcissistic way, because if you read Mark closely, you realize the reason why it's repeated so many times, because the people don't get it. And speaking of your discussions recently about the messianic secret and the problem of it you know at the end of the transfiguration what does jesus say don't talk about this till i've been raised from the dead and what do the disciples think they didn't understand jesus it says in the next verse they didn't understand right and so they didn't understand until he was raised from the dead and this is the thing until you see that the law cannot keep jesus down that he is going to have life because of the Father, not because of the law, and this is what the resurrection is showing. The works of the law, specifically. Exactly. Until the disciples see that, they just can't get it. So again, after the transfiguration, they don't get it. And then they ask about Elijah. Why does Elijah have to come before the Messiah comes? And he says, well, in Scripture it says that Elijah comes to correct all things, and then the Son of Man is going to suffer. You've seen that Elijah came... And then Jesus kind of lets you fill in the rest of the blank, which is, again, the Son of Man is going to suffer. So he tried that in the previous chapter, and Peter said, don't let this happen to you. And he had to say, get behind me, Satan. Then he tried to show something at the transfiguration. They didn't get it. So here again, he's trying to hint again at the fact that he's going to have to suffer. And then we have this episode with the Spirit and the Son who's possessed. Now, one thing I think is important, it says that he has a dumb spirit. 
a spirit that's unable to speak. Because if the child has not received the teaching, he's not able to speak the word of God, which makes him effectively dumb. It makes him effectively unable to speak. And unless you're going to preach the gospel, O disciples, keep your mouth shut. Exactly. Especially these disciples, because they don't understand anything. They just don't understand anything. And that's why they were having a big discussion with the scribes. Well, the scribes are supposed to know scripture, and they couldn't deal with this demon. The disciples afterwards say, why couldn't we deal with this? I mean, the disciples, of course they can't get rid of this spirit because they don't have the spirit in them. They don't have the teaching in them. So if they don't have the teaching in them, they can't expel a demon, which is the lack of the teaching. It doesn't make sense. And I think it's interesting also because we see a slight difference. When they say he has a spirit, they say he has a dumb spirit. But what Jesus says is he has a deaf and dumb spirit, emphasizing the fact that he doesn't hear. Correct. He can't hear and therefore can't speak. And so when Jesus is talking about this child with the spirit, he's also talking about the disciples because they're deaf. They can't hear. So Jesus can talk Torah to them until the cows come home. And they won't understand. And as a result, they're dumb, they're unable to speak because they have no teaching in them to speak. They can talk, but they can't speak. This is the difference. This is why the exorcism prayers at the baptismal service in the Eastern Church are not magic or exorcism in the way that people understand this in a popular piety. What these prayers are is a statement of hope that in the rearing of the child— the parents and the sponsors, the godparents, would not do what the father in this pericope in Mark does, that they would not render their child speechless for lack of teaching. How does the exorcism happen? You spit on the devil and all of his teachings and unite yourself to Christ and all of his teaching. The way that we talk about these is a personification, but a personification of this teaching. You know, that's how Jesus is the Logos. Well, even and also in the Western tradition, in the Latin tradition, you you spit also upon all his hosts, all his angels, all his pride and so forth. But even when you talk about angels, angelos and malaika, these are the messengers of the king, which in the New Testament is a, a reference to the apostles. That's why in Galatians, when Paul says, even if an angel should contradict me, it's a veiled way of saying, I don't care what the other apostles are saying. Because I heard this directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. A teaching, a word, is what's coming. That's what defines those beings. Their wings or their robes or their sword or whatever you imagine they have does not define what they are. What defines them is the word that they bring. And this is why, I mean, we see this even in the Eastern tradition. If you see an icon of John the Baptist, he's got wings. Why? Because he flew? I don't remember him ever flying in the New Testament. No, it's because he was an angelos, meaning he was a messenger. He brought a word. This is what makes the difference. Having wings is not what makes you an angel. The fact you're an angel means that you have a message. You have a word that you're teaching. And so we're going to keep pushing this idea that it is the teaching that makes the difference. It's the teaching that defines if you're an angel. It's a teaching that defines whether it's a good action or a bad action or a good spirit or an evil spirit or the spirit of God or what is the thing that allows God to move all over the place? It's the wind that blows him around. What is that wind? That wind is his teaching. How is it that God can be anywhere? Because his teaching can be anywhere. 
This is always the function of the Spirit, is that it brings this teaching. And when it comes of God, it's the teaching that destroys your teaching. It's the Spirit that destroys your spirit. It's the Spirit of God that destroys the spirit of your ego. And this boy was suffering from the spirit of his ego because the father did not have trust. Now, like you said, Father, I'm going to say it again. When you read faith in the New Testament, read trust. Correct. Not belief. Not belief belief in, in our English usage of the term. Not belief or faith in a series of precepts or ideas or, you know, I have faith because I believe that God is three in one or whatever. Yeah. This is not what it is. It's trust. I trust. So when the father says, I trust you, forgive me for not trusting. That's what he's saying. I trust you. Do what you need to do. Forgive me because I didn't trust. So what the father is doing is he's throwing himself at the mercy of Jesus that Jesus can restore his son even though the father kept him from starting off on the right foot. Now, when I say the destruction of the spirit, how God's spirit destroys our ego and destroys who we are, Look at what happens once the spirit leaves the boy. Everyone believes he's dead. So much so, Mark tells us, they even say he's dead. This is why it makes absolute sense to associate the prayers of exorcism, which pertain, again, to teaching prior to the actual baptism of the child. It actually parallels Mark very closely in this regard. And after Jesus has been trying to tell the disciples, look, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer. Now we have the boy, and once he receives the correct spirit, receives the correct teaching, he's like he's dead. And then Jesus raises him up. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, uh... Uh, I'm just, I'm ad-libbing for those of you. Uh, uh, Jesus, um, how come we couldn't cast it out? Right. And so Jesus says another beautiful verse that is twisted by Christians in the same way that the Torah was twisted in the classical world as something that you use to achieve an outcome. That's not what Jesus is saying. So he said to them, this kind cannot come out by nothing except prayer and fasting. Right. And, of course, prayer and fasting can be motivated by any number of spirits. So, is and this is how you can tell, is your fasting and prayer causing you to do the works of the Torah? Or is it causing you to do other th- works, i.e. evil works? And so prayer and fasting... What they represent here is the way that they're going to break down their ego so they can finally hear. This is the problem. Jesus is stuck with these people because he keeps speaking. This is chapter 9. He's been talking at them for a long time. We're over halfway to the end. And they still don't understand the first thing about what Jesus is and what Jesus is supposed to do. So after this, Jesus will explain it once again. And so the prayer and fasting are saying, look, you guys need to afflict yourself so you can get over your ego and understand what it means to have the correct spirit in you so that maybe your ears would open and you could hear what I'm saying. It's another way of saying shut up, please, because you don't know what you're talking about. Because when you're praying, you're saying what you're told to say. And when you're not eating, you're keeping your mouth shut and you're denying yourself. The danger with this passage with modern piety is that people then think that they are Jedi Knights 
and they're meditating with Yoda, and if they don't eat and they say their prayers, they'll be able to levitate droids in midair and cast out evil spirits. It's not ascesis, right? It's actually anti-ascetical in the sense that it is rendering you powerless. It's when you are powerless, right? And you speak to acquire power and you eat to acquire strength. So when you twist fasting around and talk about your Lenten journey and what you're trying to achieve during Lent to better yourself, to prepare for eternal life, to mortify the flesh, if you achieve the mortification of your flesh, you're not mortified because you achieved something. In the late antique world, there was plenty of warnings against this. The warning that the devil fasts more than you. Right, because he wants to be skinny and look good. I mean, come on. <laughs> In other words, just as spirit and bread and rain is a metaphor for judgment, God's teaching his Torah. And so all these things are metaphors. Prayer and fasting is also metaphoric. Because you could say, oh, bread represents the teaching. But if you gorge yourself on bread, you're going to be fat. Does that mean something's wrong with God's teaching? So then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. In other words, my disciples don't know what they're talking about, so I don't want them opening their mouth because they're not going to say the correct thing. They're not going to preach what I want them to preach, what my father gave me to preach. That's number one. Number two, I'm not interested in being famous for anything other than what my father gave me to preach. I didn't come here to bear witness to stupidity. I came here to bear witness to the Torah. And, and Jesus and Mark will not allow his life to bear witness or his actions to bear witness to anything other than what his father gave him to teach, which up until now, no one is repeating except Jesus. Look, if the disciples go off and just start talking, Jesus is going to be a guru. Look at this guy did some awesome stuff. There's this guy and he did this awesome thing. You should see it. He's so awesome. He does amazing things. He's so awesome what he's able to do. And then he's a guru. He's able to do cool tricks. What Jesus is trying to do is to form the disciples. The only way he can form the disciples is saying, look, this is not about your ego. If I even hear that you're talking about all the cool stuff I'm doing, you're dead meat. I will crush you. I will crush you. This is not about the cool stuff. This is about forming your mind. This is about you receiving the teaching. I will know that you're not receiving the teaching. And if you're not receiving the teaching, you're not acting according to the teaching because you cannot act according to the teaching without the teaching. And I will know that you've chosen Satan over me. If I even smell that you're focusing on the glamour they want to talk about how cool Jesus is, and that's the issue. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise on the third day. And then comes this statement, Richard, that alludes to what you've been saying. Which unfortunately we don't have in the lectionary reading. Correct. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. <laughs> exactly. So we make ourselves so happy that we like, oh, wow, look at what he's doing. But even we fall in the lectionary because we left out the key verse that they didn't understand and were afraid to ask. The fact that they didn't understand is bad enough, especially after hearing it so many times. But we're afraid to ask means they wouldn't even admit they didn't understand. Even worse is the next discussion is who's going to sit at the right hand of, of Jesus when he dies. Right. More glamour. Right. They just can't get it. And so 
you teach because you have a duty, because God forbid your child grows up to be as ignorant as these disciples. Thanks very much, Richard. Thank you, Father. Take care. Bye. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.